I'd like you to open your Bibles with me this morning to James, the third chapter. Um, We need to, every once in a while, remind ourselves of what goal we've been pursuing and kind of keep that in focus. And we are not anywhere near Philippians chapter 3 right now, but that's really the the umbrella of all of this uh, short series that I've been focusing on, where Paul says, I want to know Jesus Christ. That's his ambition, his drive, his desire in life. I want to know Christ. And he says, I want to be found in him, not having my own righteousness. In other words, not having that which I have produced in terms of like a moral code or religious activity. But I want to be found in him having his righteousness that comes by faith. You know, the scripture says, how can two walk together unless they're in agreement. And uh, we, our vernacular is, we kind of say, are you on the same page with me? What that means is, you know, are, are we seeing the same things? Are we headed in the same direction? Do we, do we want the same objectives? What's in front of us? And if we're going to walk with Christ in this kind of unity to know Him, we've got to be on the same page with Him. We've got to be moving in the same direction. Our goals and desires and passions have to be in concert with His. Or He's going to be going somewhere else and we're not going to have that intimacy. So along with that passion to know Christ comes the work of God in our lives to make us like Him, that we might truly bear His image and reflect Him. One of the ways that I think God deals with us, well, I know God deals with us in this way, one of the ways that is so crucial in that process is the transformation of our speech. That our tongue be like the tongue of Christ. That the way our manner of speaking also reflect His life within us. Now, Sometimes in the Bible there are those passages that are so clear and sharp and focused on one specific aspect that we call that the the classical location for this passage. And if you want to know what the classical location in all the Bible is for the tongue, it's James chapter 3 verses 1 to 12. That's the place where the tongue is the subject most clearly and most forcefully explained and expressed by James in chapter 3. And so even though this isn't Paul's writing, it is Scripture, it's the Holy Spirit writing. And I want you to look with me in James chapter 3 for a moment. Follow along as I read it. And then I want to point out some things about it. Let not many of you become teachers, my brothers or brethren, knowing that as such we shall incur a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. Now, if we put the bits into the horse's mouth so they may obey us, we direct their entire body as well. Behold, the ships also, though they are so great, are driven and are driven by strong winds, are still directed by a very small rudder wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. 
Behold, how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire, and the tongue is a fire. The very world of iniquity, the tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. For every species of beast and birds and reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race, but no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. As a fountain sent out from the same opening, both fresh and bitter water, can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives, or a vine produce figs? Neither can salt water produce fresh. Now, James starts out in this admonition talking about those of us who would aspire to be teachers. And while the Bible, on the one hand, holds forth the idea of teaching as, a, as an affirmative kind of desire, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, to be an elder, to be a, a teacher, a leader, that's a good thing they desire to do, the Scripture says. And yet James reminds us that those who teach will incur a stricter judgment. We come under greater scrutiny. And the reason for that is, is because anyone who is in a position of teaching is in a position of influence. I would like to think that after I bring a message on a Sunday, that all of you go home and uh, talk about it at the lunchtime. And then uh, as you continue your Sabbath, you get out your Bibles in the afternoon and you check out what I had to say. And you have these conversations in your families and you kind of talk about the sermon and, and uh, search the scriptures to see if it's true. But... I know that that doesn't always happen. In fact, it may not ever happen. I don't know. I'd like to think it does once in a while. But the reality is, is that although you are ultimately responsible before God for what you believe and understand and follow, nonetheless, I recognize that you probably pay more attention to me than you should. Or maybe you don't pay enough, I don't know. But anyway, um, because I have a position of influence. And when you just listen to people, everyone who stands in front of a group teaching is in a position of influence because their words tend to direct or inspire or cause uh, people to make certain choices and actions. And even though we're not supposed to be gullible as hearers, the reality is that teachers, through their tongues, have influence. James begins there. But then he moves down away from the public arena to just all of us in our everyday speech. And he moves from that concept that teachers influence groups to the idea that you and I influence one another through what we say. And in verse 2, he says a very amazing thing. For we all stumble in many ways. That's not the amazing thing. That's the obvious thing. But here's the amazing thing. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, 
He is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. Now that is an amazing statement. Because James is telling us that if we can control the tongue, the rest of our life is a piece of cake. If we can control what we say and rule over that instrument in our mouth, we can exercise self-control and discipline in every other realm of life. Our whole body, everything else we do will be just a cakewalk because the tongue is tough, but if you get it under control, you've got everything under control. That is the, the, the supreme exercise of self-discipline. Now, he goes on to tell us in a little bit, that's not possible. But he's making the point that the tongue has that kind of difficulty and that kind of power. And then he gives us some analogies. He says, for example, we put bits in horses' mouths and we attach them to the bridle and the reins. And with that, we control the movement of this huge animal just by this thing in its mouth. We're able to control the whole animal. Or he says, consider a ship, how big a ship is. And how small the rudder is by comparison. If you look at the rudder, it's just a very tiny part of a very large ship. And yet, he says, despite the currents, despite the wind, despite uh, other things that are going on, and, and the vast size of the ship, the rudder is able to steer it however the pilot wants it to go. And he's likening these things to our tongue, that even though the tongue is small, it has great influence and great power. That's the point that he's making. And then he says, it's like that um, little flame that sets on fire the forest. You remember the Smokey the Bear commercials? I don't know if they, I haven't seen one in a long time, but they used to have them. Only you can prevent forest fires. You remember that one? And, and be careful to put out your campfire and make sure there aren't any glowing embers left. And, because it only takes a little spark, unattended, a little puff of wind. And pretty soon what you thought was a smoldering ember is a raging forest blaze. And James says the tongue is like that. It's small. But like the rudder of a ship, like the bit in a horse's mouth, and like the tiny spark that ignites a forest, the tongue has tremendous power. And then he gets down to the truth about it. If you look in verse 7, he says, uh, or verse 6, let me back up to 6, Behold how great... Uh, a forest is set aflame by a small fire, and the tongue is a fire. It's like that little flame, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. For every species of beast and bird and reptile and creature has been tamed by the human race. But no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless the Lord. And with it, out of the same mouth, we curse men. 
the scripture says with the with the giving of many words sin is inevitable the point that solomon is making in the proverbs is the more you talk the more likely you are to paint yourself into a corner if you keep running your mouth you're eventually going to get yourself in trouble and james says that the tongue is like a fire that sets on fire the course of our lives. How many people's lives are in trouble this morning? How many of you are in trouble this morning because of something you've said? Somebody you need to apologize to, some stupid thing that you did the other day, something that's haunting you that you said a while back that you wish you hadn't said, some promise you made that you know you can't keep, it's beyond your ability, some kind of commitment... Um, some crass remark that caused someone some hurt or pain. James says our tongue is always setting our lives on fire. It's always creating problems. And then he gets down to the bottom line and he says, and you can't tame it. It's out of your control. If you could. Self-control in every other realm would be no trouble at all. But the reality is you can't control your tongue. It's a runaway fire that gets away from you before you know what's happening. Now, the good news is that the Bible doesn't leave us in this stew. Because it is possible for the tongue to be controlled, just not by you. It's possible for it to be controlled by the Holy Spirit. I want to take you back to Ephesians chapter 4, if you'll look back with me, because here's Paul's uh, testimony and commentary on the matter. Ephesians chapter 4. Now, when you get to Ephesians 4, I just want to remind you again that, like so many of Paul's writings, he has spent the first three chapters of Ephesians talking about who we are in Christ. The consequence of being in Christ gives us certain benefits. He is in us. We are joint heirs with Him. We have become heirs to the promises of God. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realm is ours in Christ Jesus. And so the context of all that Paul says, beginning in chapter 4, is based on who we are in Jesus Christ. If we read Paul incorrectly we're going to turn his admonishing passages into a bunch of rules and do's and don'ts. And if you do this with the tongue, you're going to be right back there in James. You can't contain it. But if you understand that when Paul begins to talk about how this looks in our everyday lives, when Jesus Christ is fully in us, how does it look? He's giving us a, like a mirror, like a reflection to say, okay, is Jesus in control of this area of my life? Is he coming through? Is it coming through clearly? So when Paul says, don't let this be true of you, it's a reminder to go back and say, if this is true of me, I don't need to try harder here. I need more Jesus. I need to go focus on him. Because what I'm about to, to share this morning in terms of the tongue is something that a...
there is great, 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 great power for accomplishment. In Ephesians 4.29, uh, Paul says, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is edification, according to the need of the moment, that it may give grace to those who hear, killed for the day of redemption. Now, in, in, in this passage, Paul has already said a lot of things that should be true of his followers. But, it is directly in connection with speech that he says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. I mean, there are many other ways that we can grieve the Spirit. But Paul links it in Ephesians 4 to the verse about our speech. The Holy Spirit is most frequently grieved when we're running off in ways that, that is causing damage and pain or, or in some other way disparaging the cause and work of Christ. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit by how you talk. Bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away along with malice and be kind to the tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ also loved you and himself for us an offering and a sacrifice as a fragrant aroma. But this is proper among the saints and there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting which are not fitting, but rather of thanks. And before we talk about this a little bit, look at Colossians chapter beginning in verse 8. Paul, in a very similar note, has the same theme, but now, Colossians 3, 8, put, you also put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in a true knowledge, according to the image of the one who created him, a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. And so is those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a cart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone. In both of these passages, Paul stresses that part of the development of the image of Christ in us has to do with the control of our mouth. It has to do with our speech. And in the middle of that, as he transitions from the negative to the positive, he talks about the image of Christ being formed in us. And then he brings us over to the idea of being kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving, compassionate, and gracious. Even before I get to the deeper uh, meaning of the way we talk, let me just say that the church should be a place 
where we come and find safety. This should be a place where we get encouragement, where we get built up, where we get edified, where we get strengthened. This should be a safe place where we can disclose our needs and our difficulties and find the help of one another to encourage rather than to take us further down. Every once in a while you find a friend out there in the world, but for the most part the world beats you up. This daily life and the daily grind and all the things that have to do with job and and survival, the world beats you up. But the church is supposed to be a place where we can find that encouragement. Now, in the midst of that, Paul says, there's some kinds of speech that should never be named among you. And there's other kinds that should be most common among you. First of all, he says, let no unwholesome word proceed out of your mouth. The word there in Greek literally means rotten. Let nothing come out of your mouth that stinks, that has that stench of rottenness. Don't allow words that cause damage and infection and stench in the lives of other people. Be careful about what you say. There must be no filthiness and silly talk. The Greek word behind silly talk, again, is another fascinating word. It's literally moron. There must be no coarse uh, filthiness or moronic speech. Just going on rambling about nothing. The filthiness is interesting as you look at humor and the evolution of humor in the last 30 or 40 years. Uh, some time back, someone had sent us a link and reminded us of Red Skelton. And uh, so we were on the internet looking at some of the old TV programs of Red Skelton's uh, you know, show. And the guy was just funny. He didn't base his humor around sexuality or bodily functions or uh, any of those. Uh, he, just, he was just funny. He took life situations... And, and pointed out the comedy of, of human beings in everyday kind of circumstances. And the thing that was so amazing and amusing to me about Red Skelton was he sometimes would get so tickled with himself he could hardly get to the punchline. You know, he laughed at his own, at his own jokes. But when you, when you watched him, there wasn't a lot going on there where you could watch it as a family and not turn red, you know? There wasn't a lot going on there that would bring embarrassment. But if you look at the evolution of humor since those days, most stand-up comedians today, you know, you find the programs are actually rated. And the humor is oriented around the baser elements of human existence. There's nothing impure in, in essence of human sexuality, and there's nothing impure about bodily function. But it's interesting that stand-up comedians can take those issues and turn it into a kind of ribald laughter that is purely coarse and base in its nature. That's the kind of filthiness that Paul is 
talking about when he speaks of the humor or the kind of silly talk and moronic speech that would come out of our mouths or just plain uh, banter that has no purpose and no meaning. Some people can talk endlessly about nothing and they go on and on and on. And with the making of many words, sin is inevitable. You're going to end up in a lie or an exaggeration or something's going to happen as you're telling the long and expansive tale. Paul says this is not to be the way believers are. You know, and I I was sharing my testimony with you a few weeks ago, but you know, from some of the things I've said about my, my past, I worked our way through college. One of my jobs was in construction, and I stayed in the construction industry for quite a number of years, and I worked for a while as a a police officer, and for 20 years in this county as a volunteer paramedic. Squad rooms of police and firefighters and paramedics and construction crews are notorious for their language, particularly and I'm not picking on police officers and firefighters, but because they deal with life usually at its most gruesome or at its worst, there's a kind of humor that develops in that atmosphere that's sort of sick unless you happen to be on the inside of it. But I can tell you that there's no baser speech than there is among those kinds of professions that I've just mentioned, and it goes on to to many others, where you get a bunch of people together and every other thing that comes out of their mouth almost is in some way coarse or inappropriate or poor language or bad jesting or silly talk. Paul also says in Ephesians 5.4, there should be no coarse jesting. This is the person who has the ready wit usually at someone else's expense. It may be sexual in nature that impurity is a part of the concept here, the coarse jesting, but it's also jesting that may be at someone else's expense, not necessarily in a sexual realm. How many times do you see children on the playground picking at one another's features or clumsiness or attributes and criticizing. Because of a heart condition that I had growing up that wasn't diagnosed until I was 12 and ultimately repaired by surgery, I was not very athletic in terms of team sports as a youngster. As a consequence, I was not terribly coordinated. And you didn't have to have me on your team at school uh, to realize that I was not an asset. I was a liability in most team situations. And, um, you know, I, I can remember whenever it would come time in phys ed to choose up teams. And I was always last to be picked. Unless there was another person or two that was worse than me that would get picked after me. You know, and I and I can remember one day clearly hearing hearing one of the teams as we got down to the last draw saying, "Oh no, we've got Martin." It's like 
Yike. <laughs> I can tell you that was not very encouraging. Um, fortunately, I had other attributes that uh, shone off of the ball field, and that was a good thing, but that was not, uh, that was not uh, very encouraging to me. I had a friend in high school who was tall. He was very tall. He was about 6'10", and uh, he continued to grow all through college years and into his mid-twenties. I think he's somewhere between almost 7'1 now, or 6'10 to 7'1, somewhere in there. But, but I remember being behind him in line to get measured for our cap and gown for high school graduation. And he was horrified because they were going to make him stand against a, a, a measuring height to determine the length of his gown. And he didn't want anyone to know how tall he really was. I didn't think he was that serious about that until we went to college together, the same college, and we were roommates the first year. And um, one day I came into the dorm room and found him sitting on the bed just weeping, just heartbroken, crying. I didn't know what had happened. He's sitting on this single bed at which, the foot of which we had put a clothes trunk with a couple of blankets to extend it so he could sleep on it. And he was sitting on the bed just sobbing and I said, what is the matter? And he says, I hate being tall, he just exploded. I'm being very calm. <laughs> he just exploded. He said, I hate being tall, and I hate being made fun of. And he said, I hate it when people ask me if I play basketball. You know, you see a guy that you look up to that's like, you know, up here, and the first thing out of your mouth is, hey, do you play basketball? He was asked that by everyone. He hated that question. He hated basketball. He did not play basketball. He didn't want to play basketball. He hated the whole height thing. And I had no idea how much he hated it until that day when I saw him crushed and just sobbing because he had had one comment too many about how tall he was. Coarse jesting often takes on the weaknesses or the physical attributes, the unchangeable characteristics of other people. Maybe the way they laugh. Uh, maybe uh, they've, been, they've been made fun of and they quit laughing. Can you imagine the sorrow in a life that has no laughter because people have belittled the way you laugh? It could be a number of things over which we become self-conscious and coarse jesting picks that out and focuses in on it and, and begins to exploit that. Families can be among the most cruel in this area without recognizing it because the, the, the rivalry between siblings can be merciless. But also parents and one another. And, and close friends. We are warned by Paul to be careful because words have power and they have an impact. 
slander and abusive speech. Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, verse 8, put away slander. What is slander? Well, the legal definition of slander is when you say something about someone else that isn't true. But the biblical definition of slander is when you say someone something about someone else that isn't necessary. Because there are many true things that should never be repeated out of respect. Which one of us in this room has a life that is so perfect that we have no faults and no foibles and we've never made any mistakes? Why would you want to focus on someone's failure? Why would you want to focus on someone's faux pas, some stupid thing they did, rather than focus on the broader strokes of life that are encouraging and a blessing? And the Scripture makes that very clear, that slander is destroying the, the, the good overall quality of a person's life by focusing on the negative. Many years ago I heard someone say that Slander is anything you say about another person that is negative to someone else who is either not part of the problem or a part of the solution. And that narrows the field tremendously. I mean, if you're, if you're trying to work with people to come to a solution and you've got them all in the room together and you're working together, then you may have to kind of get down to the nitty gritty with each other. Or if you're referring someone, sometimes with permission, I talk to other people who are part of the solution. But we need to, to be careful, Paul says, that we don't speak unkindly of one another in a way that damages the overall impression of a life that is essentially beneficial and gracious in its character. You know, I think we even need to be a little bit careful of this in, in the realm of politics. I and mean, politicians put themselves in a special place. Certainly we need to be free to criticize their work. We need to be free to criticize policy and talk about that. But we need to be careful about disparaging the individual. You know, president bashing is one of our favorite pastimes. <laughs> doesn't matter who it is. Sometimes it, it is uh, humorous in a sick kind of way. But the truth of the matter is that no one who has that job has an easy job. I don't care how smart they seem to be or how stupid they seem to be. I don't care what political persuasion they tend to come from. The truth is that I wouldn't want their job for five minutes the pressure cooker of intensity. And and no one who aspires to be the president, I don't think, ever realizes how intense it is until they land there. You look at every president we've had, and they age in office. It is a costly experience. You know? And, and they may be doing dumb and stupid things uh, from from all accounts, but there's still something to be said for the willingness to take it on. I'm, I'm not trying to create a kind of a false, kind of like, oh, wow, that's just not even real, Martin. But I'm using the presidency as an illustration. 
people who are in the public view because of their jobs have often taken on tremendous responsibility. And we may not like what they're doing. But we need to be careful about picking personally at them. Because they are willing to take that on. People who are in management, people who, whatever. Slander and abusive speech. And words that are lies. You know, again, with the making of many words, sin is inevitable. (laughs) You eventually paint yourself into a corner, or you just outright try to lie your way out of one. Paul said, these things should never be true of a follower of Christ. We need to be people who live in the light. And when when we're... (laughs) You know, when we're caught in a situation that we didn't intend, perhaps, and and we didn't see it coming, but we failed, we need to be willing to say, you know what, I failed, I'm sorry. And and just move on, instead of building the reasons. Because speech that moves toward a lie is so unlike Christ. So what's the other side of it, the flip side? Well, going back to Ephesians 4.29, Paul says, Let no unwholesome word proceed out of your mouth. Those are all the unwholesome words. But he says, Let these kinds of words, only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, that it may give grace to those who hear. Now, words of edification, the word edification itself means to build up. We call a large structure an edifice. It's built up really big. Edification is words that build up, that strengthen, that fortify, so that the, the person is, is better grounded and more stable in their lives. They're built up and fortified in their lives. Words of edification that build up, that are spoken in the need of the moment. Now, remember that only the Holy Spirit in in our lives can guide us in these ways to direct our speech. We need Him to do that. And there is never a time that I am more conscious of relying on the Holy Spirit than when I am called to go into a situation of crisis, in a family that's in crisis, a marriage that's in crisis, maybe a hospital to the emergency room, and there's been an an accident, a trauma, there's been some kind of a problem, and I've been called into that situation. And those are the kinds of things with some little preparation. I'm praying, Lord, guide what I say. I don't know what to say. You know, we were, uh, Herb and I have been talking with our group of elders and deacons in terms of the pastoral care ministry of the church, and a number of you are here this morning, they're in that group, and I think sometimes that um, that spiritual leaders within the church tend to look at those of us who have been trained to be pastors and say, well, they've been taught how to do this. They're, they're, they're equipped, that's what their training was for. Pastors are trained to go to the emergency room in a crisis. I never made one ER visit in my whole training. 
I, I got all the way through college and got my degree, and I never once went to the emergency room to visit in a crisis. In fact, nobody ever told me how to do that. That was not a part of the deal. The first time I ever went was I was in a church and someone was in a crisis and I had to go. And it was like, oh Lord. (laughs) What? I don't know what to do. I have no idea what to do. I just want you to know that. Just in case you, you wondered, you know, we had this secret class, how to handle trauma in people's lives. We did not have that class. That was not in my curriculum. It was sink or swim. You're in it now. You're the pastor. Go. And God, what am I going to say? What am I? I don't know what to say. I really don't. I go with the knowledge that the Holy Spirit is going to do something. If I just show up and let him. And did you know, to the best of my knowledge, I don't ever remember him ever saying to me one time in an emergency room with a death or a sudden critical illness, you need to share Romans 8.28 with them. I'm working in this thing to make everything turn out for good and they should be praising God. I have never heard the Holy Spirit lead me to do that. Is that true? That is a true statement. Romans 8.28 is in the Bible. There is no situation that comes into your life that God cannot turn around for good to those who love Him and are the called according to His purpose. We stand on that promise, but I have never been led to say it to anyone in the midst of their sudden acute pain. That is not the verse they need to hear right then. They need to hear something else. I can remember situations where I walked into the family counseling room over across the street and all I did was take a person in my arms and just hold them as we wept together. There was nothing else to say or do. You know, I remember many times of saying, I am so sorry. I am so sorry. But never... You know, God's going to turn this out for your good. Just praise the Lord. People don't need that then. There is a time and a place for every word. There is a need that is acute. And only the Holy Spirit knows what needs to be said to fit that need. And Paul says, make sure when you speak your words... That they are not only words of edification, but they are according to the need of the moment. That what you're saying is what needs to be said to accomplish that goal of empathy, of connection, of building a person up, of addressing their crisis, or rejoicing with them. It doesn't have to be the tough stuff. The other thing that terrified me was, you know, I never had a, uh, I never had a course in how to do a wedding. Not one. No one ever told me how to do a wedding. Two years after I got my license to be a pastor, somebody handed me a book on the pastor's manual of my ordination. That was like three years too late. 
It had the wedding ceremony in it. It was nice, to, but I fortunately had already found one before then. But they waited till then to give me one. I had bought my own. No one ever told me how to do that. I was scared to death my first weddings. Do you know why? I thought I was the one in charge of the show. It would, honestly, I mean, this may seem silly to you guys, but it took me a while to figure out, I am not why they're here. They're here for the bride and the groom. This is about them. It has nothing to do with me. I'm just up there making it all hang together until they say I do and sign the document. This is all about them. And the capacity to lose yourself and rejoice with other people and have joy in their lives is, is a part of that need. You forget yourself. And it was, you know, and I can remember, listen, I was here. I'd been a pastor for a number of years. I was here standing in that room, nervous as a cat one day, on a Saturday afternoon about to come out for a wedding, when God said to me, not in these words, but it felt like this, Dummy, this is not about you. Oh, it finally got to me. I'm here to serve. This is about them. So forget yourself and get lost in their day. What a novel concept. And all of a sudden, the whole dynamic changed. Because I was there as his ambassador to bring words of blessing. Words of affirmation, words of encouragement. One of the things I'm saying to you underlying this, this is kind of a secondary agenda, okay, is all of you, you can minister to other people if you just go and let God work. That's all He's looking for, is someone who will go and be available to Him. And that step of faith is, is to go into the situation, whatever it is, with the confidence that the Holy Spirit is going to fill your mouth and heart with what is needful in that moment. He is faithful to do that. And there aren't any classes. There are no how-to seminars. This is life as it happens. Move into it with the confidence that God will be there to meet you. And he says, words that will give grace to those who hear. You don't have to turn back to James, but I want to remind you of a phrase there that I omitted until now to to bring us back to it. James says, with the same mouth we both bless God and curse men. Now, the word curse in the Bible is an interesting word. The Hebrew word, and ultimately emerges into the New Testament and the Greek wording, the Hebrew word has many shades of meaning. It first appears in Genesis chapter 3, Cursed is the ground because of you. And then throughout the Bible, the word shows up again and again. It does not mean profanity per se, or slang or bad language. Most of the time, when we say the word curse in our context, that's what comes to mind. Somebody's cussing. 
No, that's not what we're talking about. The word curse has as its root to be accursed, to be contemptible, to be despised, to be insignificant, to treat a thing lightly, to esteem it lightly, to shake it or move it back and forth, to slight a thing, to treat it trivially as if it were not important. With our mouths we bless God and we treat other people as though they were not important, as though they were trivial, as though their lives were insignificant. Or we speak words that cause them to tremble and to shake. Or we say things that are contemptible and make them feel contemptible. With our mouths, words come out that may haunt a person the rest of their life. You will never amount to anything. You will never be an A student. You will never succeed in this area. You always cause trouble everywhere you go. I mean, think about the words that curse. They bring a curse on a person's life. Those words echo in their minds. And they drag them down and make them... They actually have control in their lives. Those powerful words that turn the ship, that set the forest on fire, they affect people in strong ways. And, and the Scripture says... Give words that bring grace. What does grace do? Grace brings a blessing. It brings affirmation. It is not the flattery, but it is the genuine compliment. You do that so well. I love it when you play the piano. You take such great pictures you have just a way of saying things that brings encouragement. You really look nice today. That's a, that's a nice outfit on you. Those kinds of words actually bring grace. They bless. The words that bless even more are the words that go to the Spirit. I saw Christ in you the other day. When you did this, He came through so clearly. Wow! You talk about words that build up. You're really good at that. I love it when you do that. You're so good at it. You'll go far in life with that skill. Words that that bring power into a person's life. I'm not talking about mumbo-jumbo, positive mental attitude garbage. I'm talking about the truth 
spoken by the Holy Spirit into the life of another person that testifies to them what God is seeing as you speak the truth to them in a way that builds up, in a way that blesses. Sometimes in edification, exhortation, we have to say the hard things. We have to bring correction. You know, we we may have to say the tough thing, but we need to be careful that we have earned the right to speak into a person's life if we're going to bring correction. They need, you, you know who, if I'm driving through town and I make some stupid mistake driving and somebody goes like this at me and yells at me, do you know how long I remember that? Long enough for them to get out of my sight. And I, that doesn't mean a thing to me. I don't care. Some stranger on the street can, can say anything and I don't care. Well, that may not be true, but no one said anything yet that made me care enough to remember it for very long. In fact, I can't even remember the last time it happened. But if you said something to me that was hurtful, I would remember that. And if you criticized me, I would think about that. And when people who love me say things that are hard for me to hear, I can tell you one thing. I never dismiss them. I assume that they have a valid point until I take it before God and search it out. And... and we need to earn the right through love to speak into a person's life the tough things. Sometimes we need to do it, but we need to know that we have earned the right because those are powerful moments. If we're not being led by the Spirit and we have not earned the right, we can make a mess. Far better is it to talk to God about someone in the privacy of your closet than to speak out of turn to them before the Lord is leading or you have gained that kind of trust. Jesus in his life in John 14 testifies to a very uh, interesting thing. He says, the words that I speak are the words that I have heard from my Father. In verse 10 of John 14, he says, I do not speak on my own initiative. You want to know how to control the tongue? You let God control the tongue. I don't speak on my own initiative. I speak the words I hear the Father saying. Now, I've shared with you this morning the negative side of speech and the positive side of speech. And and you can go home today and say, okay, I'm going to purpose to do better. I heard the kind of things I ought to say and I heard things I shouldn't say. I'm going to purpose to do better. And what's going to happen? James says, James already tells you the outcome. No one can tame the tongue. If you recognize that you don't need a better tongue, but you need more Jesus, And you say, Lord, I want to walk with you. I want to be like like you. I want your Holy Spirit 
to govern my tongue. Remember Romans chapter uh, 6 where Paul says, commit your members to God as instruments of righteousness. Well, here's a member. This one. Commit that tongue to God as His. Sanctify it. Set it apart. Give it to Him. Now, Lord, I want You to control my speech. Here's what my testimony is. I know this for a fact. This is how God deals with me. Sometimes things will pop into my mind in a conversation. And I hear the Holy Spirit say, you don't need to say that. He will, he will do that for you. And now that He's made it clear, I can yield to that, or I can disobey and run off at the mouth. But I want to be like Christ. I want Him to be formed in me. When I hear those words, you don't need to say that. Then, Lord, I turn it over to you. Shut my mouth. I don't need to say that. Sometimes I'll hear the Lord say, this is what they need to hear, and he gives me a word. Throughout the day, you can count on God to guide your speech. Edifying words spoken in the need of the moment that give grace and build up the hearer. The Holy Spirit can show you those words. Or... Words that you should not say, he can put a check before you. If you yield your tongue to him. The Bible tells us, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. And it tells us you can't control your tongue. How do you reconcile that? He can control it when he is in charge. Have you committed your speech? To the Lord. With our words, we can change the lives of people. With our words, we can destroy them. With our words, we can encourage and build them up. With one short phrase, we can bring discouragement, disillusionment, and despair. Our words are powerful. They need to be controlled by the Spirit of God. Father, pray that you would guard our speech. And in all of that context, there is the be kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, loving each other, caring for each other. Lord, I pray that we would be a people who love you supremely, And because of that, we love each other as well. Guard our tongues. Use the power of speech as an instrument that you can use in our lives. We yield them to you. In Jesus' name, amen.